All right, all right. Going to be a great night. Uh, really excited uh, here in a few minutes after the worship gathering. Some of you have heard, but when you're a kid, uh, the, one of the best things about living in the neighborhood is the ice cream truck. And we, uh, tonight after the service, have actually called, called upon the ice cream truck to show up here. And we're picking up ice cream for everyone after the service, so it should be a lot of fun. Uh, I am... I'm incredibly encouraged tonight because God's power is always uh, moving. The scripture says that uh, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. Uh, the reality is, is, that, is that sometimes it seems more real than others. And in response to last week, for some of you who were here, in our challenge and push straight from the scripture, for teachers to be teachers, for disciplers to be disciplers, for those who it's time to get off milk to leave it, In response to last Wednesday, we had 29 people show up on Monday night to be trained to be a disciple and a discipler. Incredible, incredible stuff. So I'm I'm truly encouraged. Uh, Again, sometimes God's power seems more real. But tonight, I need to begin with a vivid image that has been in my mind uh, since uh, Monday. So I want you to kind of use your imagination, and I want you to take a little bit of a journey uh, with me. The journey starts out like this. You're you're beginning to walk through a forest of a redwoods. Uh, now, I'll put this a picture up for me. Now, I don't know, I don't know what you know or, or don't know about redwoods, but they are literally the tallest known tree in the United States. They can grow to be 360 feet tall. So take a football field, put it vertical, and add another 60 feet, and that's how tall these trees are. And so one day you find yourself walking through this kind of forest, this forest of vast propensity of trees that are incredibly huge. You've literally never seen anything like it. You feel overwhelmed by the height that surrounds you. And then all of a sudden in the distance, you see something that catches your eye because it's different than the rest. You notice that there's one tree that that looks incredibly different. It doesn't look anything like these at all. It's, It's only like 10 or 11 or 12 feet tall. So they're sitting in the middle of all of these huge structures is this tree that you can only assume is a baby redwood. That one day, surely, this 10, 11, 12 foot tree will grow up to be like all of the others around it. It just needs time. It just needs development. It's surely just going to grow. But what you could have never known just by seeing it is the reality of that particular redwood is that it's, it's not growing because it's underdeveloped. Its growth is stunted. It's malnourished. And so that tree will remain at its height amidst all of the other height of every single redwood. Now, it seems like an odd illustration, but I want to explain something to you. This picture has been so vivid in my mind because it is the exact opposite of what I see currently in our Christian culture in America. Straight from our discussion last week, what I see in our culture is a forest filled with growth-stunted, malnourished, for lack of a better term, trees. They're not growing, they're underdeveloped, and because there's a vast amount of them in a small space, it feels natural. It feels like that's the height you should be. Because there's only a few, it seems, that tower above the rest. 
And because those people are ministry leaders or old and seasoned or rocks of the faith, in our minds we think, well, they should be that tall and I should be here. And what it begins is a vicious cycle in the church. Listen to this. Where the immature, malnourished, underdeveloped Christian teaches other immature, underdeveloped, malnourished Christians. And what is produced? An entire culture of Christianity that is nowhere near the biblical standard. But it's become normal for us. Because all we see are malnourished, underdeveloped, growth stunted believers and a few that should be and I'm telling you this right now that's not our heart here our heart here isn't to accept a cultural norm and standard our heart here is to look into the scripture and to see Jesus as our standard the scripture as our guide and truth and pour in to become teachers mature in their faith who are pouring into the younger trees if you will And so I hope this, I hope for your heart, wherever you're at tonight, is that you're ready to take a journey through the scriptures, knowing that our passion is to fight this vicious circle. Is anyone with me? Like, I'm tired of seeing a non-biblical standard as the Christian cultural norm. It shouldn't be. We need, as a church, to repent. We need to own the scripture and own our calling. Are you with me, church? So open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Tonight we're going to be, now, last week I told you it was tough because it cuts. Listen, this week's text is incredibly difficult because there are varying interpretations. I want you to know something. I take very serious preaching God's word. In fact, I approach it with fear and trembling because I believe the words that come out of my mouth, hopefully spirit-led and prompted, can easily lead us astray. And so I approach the scripture with great fear and trembling. And this week, myself and the staff and our elders, we've wrestled with this text because there are varying interpretations that are critical to understanding the passage. And so I want to read it in in total. You'll get an understanding of why it's so tricky, and then we'll start breaking it down. And I just say all this to say, look, I'm going to give you the perspective that I feel like God has put on my heart, the direction that he's put on me with the recognition that there are some scholars out there that would say, I'm not so sure. Are we together? I'm standing here tonight as hopefully a God-led, spirit-filled man proclaiming the word of Christ. So let's look here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Verse verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4. Listen to this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, listen to this, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Have you ever seen a passage like that before? Verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God in verse 8. 
But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever read a text like this before. It may seem incredibly confusing, because it is. And so what we're going to do now is word for word, verse by verse, break this down. Put up verse 1 and 2 for me. Our first problem and our first moment of contention comes right here in this first passage. We have to determine right now, and this is the varying interpretation, who is he writing to? Is he writing to followers of Christ or people who do not believe? We have to determine that right now. Are you with me? Now, I want to walk you through my logic and the logic of many other scholars to show you this. Therefore, anytime you see a word in literary writing, therefore, what does it mean? It's connecting what? It's connecting the previous passage to this passage, right? We're together. Well, if therefore is connecting last week and this week, and last week was written explicitly to followers of Jesus, remember, pushing them to be the teachers that they were called to be, then our first inclination is, well, that this first part at least must be written to Christians. Are we together? Now, let's not stop there. Let us. The writer here is a believer, right? So if the writer is a believer, and he says, therefore, connecting last week, and then he says, let us, including himself in the context, I think we just have to believe that this is writing to believers. Are we together? Okay? Now, again, this may seem rudimentary now to us, but... But it's a, it's a highly debated topic. Now, uh, the, the next word, leave, is incredibly important because literally in the Greek, it means to build upon, to take something that's there and then to build upon it. And so for all of those reasons, I believe that this first section of Scripture is writing to believers, followers of Christ. Are we together? And so we're going to pursue the next several verses based upon that interpretation. So, if this is writing to believers, then what is it saying? Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Listen to this. What he's saying is, there's, there's more. I am so frustrated with when I hear people say that they're, that they're bored with their faith. Um, all I see over and over in Scripture is that the kingdom is now and it's yet to come. There's always more. The power of Christ, the fullness of Christ, there is always more revelation. Now, I realize that many of you deal with boredom differently. Right? How many of you just want to say, like right now, you, you have like ADD times 300,000, right? Is that any of you, right? Like, so, so, listen, some of you could be put in a dark room with a lamp and a book and you would be completely content for years. And you, you would just read the book over. And others of you, n- not to mention any names, would like be eating the pages of the book within three minutes. You know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're, you're just bored just by looking outside. I mean, you just constantly need to be moving. We all have different approaches to boredom. But the faith, the, the following of Christ was never meant to be boring. It was never meant to get stale. It was never meant to just become this dull drum rhythm of life where we find ourselves antsy because God isn't providing something. And I want to tell you this, many of you in your boredom of faith have blamed it on God. God, what are you doing? Why has this gotten so boring? Why at one point was it so fun and exhilarating and it was an adventure? And now it seems like I'm on some some carriage ride 
that's blowing everyone else, going, everyone else is blowing by, and I'm sitting back not experiencing life. If you ever have thought that as a follower of Christ, I'm telling you what, over and over and over, the scripture says there's more. There's more to learn, there's more to see, there's more of God's character to take in. Don't stop. Leave the elementary teaching and build upon it because your understanding of God's character, as Brandon has already discussed, can only keep breathing. Are you with me? And so for those of you that are struggling, even now, you've come to this place where like your faith, it just feels so rhythmic that it's just gotten boring and it feels so controlled. Stop blaming it on God. Stop saying it's your fault that I found myself here. And start instead pleading the throne of God for him to show you how much more there is. Are you with me? Now, what he does here is he pairs six different things into twos. They all correlate together. And he's going to show us what he means by pushing forward into maturity. Are you with me? Now, you remember, who is he writing to here? We've already established Christians and what nature of Christians? Jewish. So to a Jewish Christian, what does it mean to want something more? It means seeing the Old Covenant, the Old Testament for what it was, and moving forward into the New Covenant, embracing the things of Christ. Are you with me? The next six things we're going to see are inherently Jewish. His point is going to be Build upon the old covenant with who Christ is. Let me show you what I mean. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, he says. Well, dead works is an Old Testament principle founded in the fact that you can somehow get to God by what you do. Much easier seen in the Old Testament because once Christ comes, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. But in the Old Testament, it got a little bit confusing right because God has commanded these things people obey and what the writer is now saying look you need to move on from your dead works because it's now found in Christ what is repentance it literally means to turn from sin to turn from dead works you're here and you completely do an about face and what does the scripture says and you turn to faith and trust in God a completely Old Testament principle, faith in God that we see found in the next two. And of instruction about washings and the laying out of hands. Now we, now we get interesting. Uh, let, let me say something about Christians and hands. Uh, how many of you guys have ever been in a, in a time where like, people were like, okay, and let's hold hands now. And we're, we, you would pray. Christians are literally the only people that I've seen anyway that like, we can just like hold hands at the drop of a hat. Have you seen this? Have you ever thought about how uncomfortable that makes other people feel sometimes? Like, you know, like non-Christians or whoever, they come to our Christian circles or our small groups, and we like, you know, stand up and we hold hands together, and we're like, what, what is happening here, you know? And, and you know when you're like me, right? Like back in the youth group days, you're positioning yourself next to the honey you want to hold hands with. Come on now. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and it was great, too, when you had one on each side, right? You're like, okay, this is a power prayer right here, right? Now, listen. Listen. Here, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. In the Old Testament... Washings is referring to the ceremonial, uh, the ceremonial washing of cleanliness, okay? Now he's saying move from that. His implication is move from that now to what? No more ceremonial washing, but now what? Baptism. Now baptism becomes the owning, the, the seeing, the symbol 
of what Christ has done and the laying on of hands. Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament structure, laying on of hands was incredibly important. They would lay on hands to to commission people. They would lay on hands as a transference of blessing and a transference of guilt. And and if you know anything about the scripture, you know that in James, the Bible talks about that the elders should come over and lay hands now in what? Not transference of guilt, not transference of blessing, but what? In prayer. Now this image of the laying on of hands comes in prayer. We're moving forward. We're getting deeper. And then he ends with this. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Well, in the Old Testament, there was this belief that the the dead would be resurrected. But now he's saying, no, no, no. Listen, the truth in the new covenant is so much deeper because Christ conquered the grave as we've sung about this evening. And because of that, now literally the dead will be raised in Christ and saved from what? Eternal judgment. So he's saying, listen, listen. You must move on from the elementary doctrines of Christ and seek deeper maturity. Now, I want to say something now, and then we'll move on. If I had a nickel for every single time I've heard a man tell me, I want to be a man of God, and then turn around and get in six or seven sexually charged relationships after, if I had a nickel for every single time that's happened in my ministry, and not just within this body, but when I go and speak at other places, and I'll be talking to dudes, and they'll say, I just want to be a man of God. And I'll say, well, how's it going so far? Well, I just got out of my sixth relationship that's purely based on lust. Are, are, you, are you sure you want to be a man of God? And what I've realized so much in the understanding of moving from elementary doctrine into deeper things is people say they want one thing, and in reality, they don't want it at all. And I want you to let that simmer in your mind as we move forward tonight. He's saying, move on. And don't just say you want to be a man of God or a woman of God. There's implications in that. Verse 3 says this. This should become your memory verse because of its shortness. And this we will do if God permits, right? Add this to your scripture memory. Now, this seems, a somewhat, uh, this seems somewhat specific. And certainly in its context, it is. This verse and statement is one of the most general, all-encompassing passages in the entire Bible. You could put anything before if God permits. Anything. We believe here in the sovereignty of God. In other words, God has a plan. He's accomplishing His plan by His power for His glory, period. Everything that's happening is underneath his permission. Satan is allowed to rule because God has let him. And if you don't believe that, then Satan is a God that won't get his head smoked when Jesus comes back and crushes the serpent's face. But Jesus will because everything sits underneath the sovereignty of God. Are you with me? And so you could literally put any single phrase before this if God permits. This is that moment in the scripture where I feel like he's writing on the truths and all of a sudden he just puts this in for the people to sit back and just stand in awe. For the people to sit back and say, this is the God that I worship. He's not like the the pagan gods. He's not like the God of my flesh and of my lust. This, This God is true and holy and righteous. Now, that's the first section. This next section... Okay, next section here. 
Let's just read this, and then we'll try to figure this out here. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. Point of contention number two, who is he writing to now? Is he still writing to believers or has he shifted gears? Well, our key phrase in understanding is the what? They have what? Fallen away. It is the most asked question of me literally in the entire ministry. Can people fall away from Christ once they start relationship with him? I kind of feel like it's the youth group question, like, so how, how far is too far? That's what I kind of feel like when people ask me that. You know, and you know what I'm saying? Like, when I was a youth pastor, it was, like, bi-weekly. So, Mark, I want to talk to you about something. So, in a relationship, what can I do with a girl that won't be sinful? And what I always felt like the perspective was is, like, are you just, are you hoping that will give you some line that's so incredibly close to intercourse that you can just push the envelope? What kind of question is it? Listen, when we as Christians begin wrestling with, can you lose your salvation? Are we hoping then that we'll just have some golden ticket permission to sin and press the line? And then have this deep understanding that, oh, because we're in the grips of Christ, that we will be saved? What's the motive of the question? Now, let's wrestle with the doctrine. Is there anywhere in Scripture that implies you can lose your salvation once God has initiated saving grace in your life? The answer to that question is no. There is no Scripture, no Scripture anywhere that gives indication that once you have begun true, authentic relationship with God, that you can somehow run from His grasp. We've said it this way before. We heard it from a great teacher. You can't break a covenant you didn't start. I want to show you an example here in Romans. Romans 6 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death because of the cross? Because of the cross, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, look at this, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For, what's the word? For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. This is the constant language of the Bible. If. You've heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. What we believe here at Matthias is if saved, always saved. Genuine, authentic, repentance, relationship with Christ doesn't mean you will be perfect. But as Paul said, why do I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things I do do? And there was a whole bunch of do's there in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. And at the end of that, he says, but I delight in the law of God. So he knew he was struggling with the, with the flesh, that there was this battle going on, but at the end of the day, he delighted in the law of God. So put up um, the Hebrews uh, four, 4 through 6 again. So then, is this written to Christians or non-Christians? Clearly, it's written then to a non-believer, listen, 
who is acting like a believer, who is living in religion, and who is experiencing some of the semblances of faithful community. Let's look at this. They have been enlightened. Well, what does that mean? They, they, they've been enlightened. It's, once you get around some light, the scripture says that you are the light of the world, speaking of believers. Once you get yourself around some light, you are enlightened, encouraged, even though you may not be adhering to it. What else does he say? Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Could be speaking of many different things here. I believe it's grace. What I love about the language is it says tasted, not digested. You can be a non-believer and see and witness, listen, the power of God and never experience it for yourself. Do we agree? You can see God doing all kinds of things. The Pharisees saw Jesus do miracle after miracle and yet they remained unbelieving. You can see the power of God and still deny it. And have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now this gets a little bit tricky. Shared in the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? How can a non-believer do that? The same thing that we're talking about within the communal setting. Seeing the power, the movement of the Holy Spirit. And yet not experiencing for themselves. Knowing full well that the Holy Spirit comes at the onset of salvation. It's the gift of God. The scripture calls it being sealed. And have tasted the goodness of the word of God. There could be people who do not believe in Jesus right here, right now. And you're hearing the word of God preached. And again, it's like it's lightly touching your tongue. It's, it's causing you to be interested. And that's the point of the scripture. L- listen to this. Have you, do you have anyone in your life where you've tried to set up coffee or a lunch with for like a, a year? Like every time you see them, you feel like the encouraging thing to say is, hey, let's have coffee so- sometime. And you, you just said that a month ago. And in fact, you, that's the eighth time you've now said it. Like, it, it gives you some kind of security, listen, to seem interested, doesn't it? Like, I care about you. I, I'm interested. Let's get together one day. But can we agree there's a difference between interest and commitment? There's an incredible difference between saying, I'm interested in getting together for coffee and then committing to it, setting it up, and sitting across the table. And for me, it'd be drinking a Diet Coke because I hate coffee and experiencing that relationship. And what he's saying is here is these people are interested, but they're not committed. They're interested in the things of Christ, but they have examined Jesus and listened and rejected him. Can I share something with you, if I could? Not that you have a choice. Listen to this. I realized this uh, earlier uh, today, actually. I was looking again at the story of Jesus and Barabbas. Remember this whole story? Remember this whole story? Look at this. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had been a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Whom do you want? He looks out at this crowd. Who do you want me to release? Is it Jesus or Barabbas? And what dawned on me? is how simple it is at the end of the day of what the two options are. Isn't it? It's like you can be incredibly interested in Jesus and not be committed, but it's so incredibly simple. It's either Jesus or anything else. Isn't it? 
And for me, like, I saw this story from a whole new perspective. It could have been anybody. It didn't matter if it was Barabbas or anything. The point was, it wasn't Jesus for them. It was whoever was over here. That's who was getting freed. For you, it's no different. For anyone, it's no different. It's Jesus or everything else. Which is it? And so what he says here is these people, non-believers, are experiencing semblances of religion. But they haven't gotten committed. They're just interested. And this gets so interesting here in verse (laughs) 6. The only passage like it in the scripture. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. In other words, he's saying like their heart is so hardened. They're not going to repent. They're going to choose everything else but Christ. Since they are crucifying once again the son of God. Have you ever seen that before? The double crucifixion of Jesus? Well, what is he saying? Is he saying that all of a sudden these non-believers in their hardened heart, non-repentant spirit, that somehow they can, they can crucify Jesus again? No, what he's saying is they've looked at grace and they said no thanks. It's not just that I will, will even take it for granted. It's that I'll look at the precious gift of grace and I'll completely say no thanks. And in doing so, figuratively what? For their own harm, they crucify the Christ again in the way of figurative, to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. His point is here, for the first group of people, press on, leave the elementary doctrine. For this group of people, your religion, your interest in Jesus must get to a place where you either say, give me Jesus or you're going to take everything else. Then he ends with this powerful Image here in verse 7 and 8. Next slide, please. For land that has drunk the rain. This this verse is poetic. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those uh, those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. These are the people that we were talking about last week that are teachers. And what does the scripture say? The rain falls on that land. What? Often, they're not bored. These people are receiving the truth of God through the scriptures in an intimate, individual, consistent way. It's falling on the land often. And what does the scripture say? It's producing fruit. Over and over and over in the Bible, Jesus said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. The mature, those growing, those teaching, those leaving the elementary doctrine and seeking the more of Christ will be producing fruit and the scripture says they will be blessed. They're blessed now to experience the love and grace of Christ and they'll be blessed in the end as they fall down and worship their creator forever. And the tough flip side of that is verse 8. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Uh, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7. Put this up for me. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to you, I never knew you. You were just interested. You sat as a spectator. You never trusted. 
You appeared interested. You appeared religious. You did the things correctly. You even spoke the word Lord, but your heart wasn't transformed. And so guess what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What I see in this passage is a beautiful, poetic charge asking you and me and the original readers, what do you want? What do you want? I feel like so often in my walk with other believers, I'm hearing things that they're saying they want, but in reality, they don't want it at all. They're saying in the image of Jesus and Barabbas, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. I want to be a man of God. I want to be a daughter of the king. I want to own this calling to be a teacher. But then there's, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. They're saying all of the things, but at the end of the day, they're showing their wants by their life. What the scripture says is the mature know they want Jesus, and that's where they find themselves. They know that Christ is all they have, and that's where they find themselves. Seeking his truth, claiming his grace when they fail, being quick to repent and owning their call. That's the difference between the mature and, in this case, the non-believer. Are you with me? So listen, listen, listen. All facade, everything aside, I'm not going to go around the room and have you raise your hand and bow your head. Can I just ask you this, though? What do you want? And I'm not talking about like, like what you would communicate to sound good. I'm just talking about look in your existence right now. What do you want? What would you say is your deepest desire, your deepest longing? To help you think of some things, I want to show you. First slide. Maybe for you it's just, it's just plain and simple. You want people to like you. Like literally at the core of you, at the core of who you are, that is what drives Everything. Pleasing people, will people like me? I want to be accepted. Next slide. Maybe for some of you it's, and I've heard this over and over, you just want to do your own thing. That's what you want. You don't want to, listen, you don't want to submit to anybody, let alone God. You don't want to sit under the authority of your boss. You hate sitting under the authority of this. You, you, you hate the concept of submitting to God, humbling yourself like the scripture says. You just want to do your own thing. Ultimately, deep down in your heart, that's what you want. And if you can do your own thing, then you're so fulfilled, aren't you? You're so content because you feel like you're in control. Next slide. Or maybe, um, maybe for some of you, it's what I already talked about. Like, it just, like I just want to live life while I can, right? Because I'm only alive for so long. So let me just live it now. Let me seek like the prodigal son every pleasure of mine. Let me just go for it. And again, like I, I realize this right now. Like maybe, maybe you would, wouldn't communicate this with people. Like, you wouldn't be like right now, you wouldn't stand up and say, yeah, that's me. Like, I, I just want to, but in your heart, you know it's true. Next slide. This seems, uh, this seems elementary, but many of you, like, this is, this is what it's all about. The Benjamins, success, more growth, just give me more. Again, the core of you. Next slide. Sometimes uh, when I go on mission trips or think about international things that are happening and then I hear someone pray like God keep us safe it's not that I don't mind the prayer of safety but I don't want to be too safe and that may sound strange but I want to be reminded that I need God and when you get so comfortable you start believing that you can make yourself comfortable 
and that it's not grace and mercy. And, and at the core of many of you, if your finances are in a row, if your house is in order, if, you're, like that's, if all of that is happening, then that would be your deepest desire. Next slide. We start talking about family, things start cutting to the core. Many of you guys know I have three precious children. And really, isn't it? Isn't that the image? Jesus or everything else, including my wife and my three precious kids. Tough to think of it that way, isn't it? But that's the truth. That's why Jesus said, like, I, did, I haven't come for unity. I've come for division. There will be father against mother, and, and he lists out all of the family members. Why? Because I have to be first. Two more. Next slide. Many of you just want to, str- to struggle in secret. Your ultimate desire by the way that you're living and the way that you're owning your life is, I can just struggle in secret and I'll act in public. That's what I want. That's what I desire. And lastly, listen, I don't want to be a part of the vicious circle. I don't want to be a part of a movement where we're deceiving ourselves. Many of you have deceived yourself into thinking that you want Jesus. You've told yourself that in the mirror enough. You've read your scriptures enough. You've communicated the things of the gospel enough that you've deceived yourself in thinking that's really what you want. When ultimately, at the core of you is one of these other things. I don't want to be a part of a deceitful movement where we've all in the secret depths of our heart We're deceiving ourselves, but when we're together, it becomes about deceiving others. What does it create? A vicious circle of what? Deceit. Instead of a whole bunch of people over and over and over in maturity saying, I am in need of Christ, period. Jesus or anything else, it has to be this. I'm in desperate need and I know it now. Take all of this away like Job, and here I am, still at your feet. Be honest with yourself right now. What do you want? No more deceit. No more playing games. You won't bear fruit, and the scripture says you will find yourself in the fire, and it's a scary passage, but it's real. And I really believe for the disciples, that's what this meal was all about. Do you want? Do you want this? My body will be broken. I will die. Do you want this? They had to answer the question. Do you want to follow me? You want to seek me? You want to go after me? Then guess what? It's going to mean your death. Do you want this? Is this what you want? Or will you take Barabbas too like everyone else? Isn't that the point for the disciples? What is it, boys? I will die and I will raise again. Do you believe that? Or will you find yourself with the crowd saying, free Barabbas, crucify Jesus? And so he broke the bread. And you know what he said? He said, take and eat. Then he holds up the cup. And he says, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. And the whole image of the receiving and the drinking and the partaking in this meal is, do you want grace? You want it? I'm the only one that can provide it. Stop looking anywhere else. The mature, 
follower, disciple, will reveal themselves by receiving of grace. So if we want to stop the vicious cycle, if we don't want the immature raising the immature and breeding a more immature generation, then it's time, my friends, that we push on. It's time that on a daily, momentary basis, we consistently see everything in our life as Jesus and everything else. So tonight, your walk up here as a believer to take communion and to pull off a piece and dip it in the cup, what you're saying tonight in your heart of repentance is, that's what I want. Be honest with yourself, though. And so I'm going to invite you right now to stand with me. All the seat aside. Let God right now in this moment, as he is anyway, peer into the depths of you. And when if and if you're ready to say, it's him that I want, it's him that I long for, everything else is worthless, then listen, then take and eat. Let's respond.